And welcome to Guys Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, sometimes known as the Guys Guy himself, welcoming you to the show. It is Wednesday, August 9th, 2017. Let me ask you a question. Do you like a good crime thriller? Do you like kind of a semi-anti-hero detective with some wry humor tied in, multiple plots dancing between each other and with each other? Well, if so, I've got the perfect book for you and the perfect guest. We've got author Charles Salzberg, Seamus Award nominee, and his series is about a skip tracer named Henry Swan, and his latest book is Swan's Way Out. We're going to discuss that and his other books in a few moments, and I'm looking forward to it. Right now, Charles is out in Central Park. And he is coaching his softball team, I believe, and he's taking a break to talk to us. So we'll bring him out in a few minutes. I don't want to keep him away from his game too long, but let's just kick off the show and then we'll get to Charles. So Guys Guys Radio is the place where when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. Better men, better world. And that's what we're all about. It's not the most commercial message to get through, but this is a time where Men really need to hear new voices. They need to know what's available out there for them. There's so many guys out there who are thinking about deep down how they can be better men, how they can do the right thing, how they can find more meaning in their lives beyond the paycheck and their job title. And they try, they try and they try and they try. But a lot of times they're just looking for quick fixes and band-aids on their current situation instead of exposing themselves to what's really out there. All the tools, all the spiritual and psychic tools are available out there. And I've had the opportunity from my long career in marketing and advertising, shifting through building my own brand and business with Guy's Guy to really have some time to learn about from a lot of it from my guests on Guy's Guy's Radio, what is available out there for us to really get the most out of this incarnation and this life. And that's what guys, guys radio is all about. We started out with my novel, the guys, guys guide to love. It's about two men competing for love and sex power and money in good old New York city. And you can find the book uh, in some bookstores still, but it's uh, basically you can find on Amazon and all the e-tailers and you'll notice 25 for 25 five-star reviews. So people have fun with the book and it's been called by Dan Wakefield, the iconic 20th century author, Dan Wakefield. It's been called the male successor to sex in the city. So I hope you'll check it out. My website is Robert Manny, M-A-N-N-I.com where I do a new blog post every week and I cover the blog post uh, in our podcast guys guys radio in a segment that I call the guys guys guide. And I do it after our guest uh, checks out of the show. And this week we're going to do part two of a, a post I did last week, which was about, should I stay or should I go five reasons why to stay in New York city and five reasons to consider leaving. And I've been here a long time and I love it. And like most New Yorkers, you run into a love-hate affair with New York at certain stages, particularly if you go underground and you ride the subways, and particularly on the weekends. But um, it's a wonderful city, and it's got everything here. But, you know, there's a big world out there, and it's a big universe out there, and you have to expose yourself to more than just good old New York City. So I'm going to take you through part two of that. Well, last week was five reasons to stay. This week it's going to be five reasons to go. So we'll get into that. You can also find me on Facebook, Robert Manny Author, uh, Twitter at Robert Manny, YouTube, Robert Manny Author, and all 236 podcasts of Guys Guys Radio are available for your listening pleasure for free on Block Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. And I would ask you to do one thing out of the kindness of your heart if you do support the show and our message. And that is if you can go onto iTunes, either subscribe to the show or rate and review it. A rating and a review really helps push us up uh, the scale. And uh, I'm going to be in the hunt for some sponsors starting this fall. And I think we're going to get some. And uh, it would be a big help to helping me spread a positive message and help men be at their best. So let's talk a little bit about what's going on out there. And then we'll bring Charles out. I don't want to keep him away from his game too long. 
we've got a solar eclipse on the 21st of August, so that's uh, in a week or so, and everything seems to be leading up to that with a Mercury and retrograde and all that. So if you're into that type of thing, this solar eclipse hasn't happened. Uh, what we're going to have is a full eclipse. It hasn't happened since, I believe, like 1918, something like that. So it's been about 100 years. We'll only get part of that in terms of viewing in the East Coast, but it supposedly has a lot of uh, meaning and power in terms of uh, human consciousness ascension so we'll see if you're into that sort of thing keep an open mind check it out and uh see if you feel the changes and the possible changes just we're at the stage of the game now uh in terms of the year where uh, mid-august uh you know you've got football preseason games start this week weekend um we've got our new york jets uh i think they're playing i think they're playing tennessee i don't know i am a sadly I am a jet season tickets holder and uh, <laughs> basically the owner has gone off to England to be a uh, representative, the ambassador to England for Donald Trump. And he's left the team to his brother. They got rid of all of the uh, quality players. And now their number one wide receiver who was only a rookie last year. He got hurt. He's out for the year. So they're talking about jets tanking the whole season, which is not what you want to hear if you're a jet season ticket holder. And you want to move your tickets because who wants to sit there in the heat and then the cold and the rain and the snow and the elements to watch the Jets go like three and uh, three and uh, 13, something like that, because they want to get the number one pick. There's two excellent quarterbacks available, one's at USC and one's at US, uh, UCLA. And the Jets, I think, are hoping uh, that if they play badly enough, they'll be able to get one of those guys. But, you know, if you're a fan and you're a season ticket holder, you don't want your team going out there and laying down before the season starts. You want them to get out there and play. This is what it's turned into in terms of uh, how these sports teams uh, treat their fans like garbage, basically. Um, What else is happening? Well, we've got our threat with – of nuclear war with North Korea. It just becomes like another line item on the news. Now we've got Kim Jong Il throwing out threats and Donald Trump matching them. Two guys have reduced themselves to Trump has reduced himself to King Young Il's level in terms of threatening to retaliate for, for threats with fire and fury. And it's like, what has this country come to? We have to get a grip on things. It seems like there's too much chaos, not enough strategy, not enough diplomacy, and too much reaction and not enough action. I hope this country can get it together and hang on, and we don't want to have some type of nuclear dust-up and all of those vulnerable people in South Korea and North Korea, they're people too, and also Japan. We don't want that. Nobody in America wants that. Nobody in the world wants that, and it's unnecessary. Let's get to the table and talk about things and see if we can work something out. Um, another big uh, sporting event coming up uh, at the end of this month is this Con- Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight. Now, this is the top guy in the MMA versus the uh, undefeated uh, Floyd Mayweather, who's uh, considered one of the greatest boxers, probably the best defensive boxer of all time. And, uh, He's a uh, going to fight a. Uh, he wants to go fifty and zero, so he's been known to kind of handpick his opponents. He either fights someone they're too young, like Canelo Alvarez, or they're too old, like Manny Pacquiao, and he's known to kind of avoid contact. And it's not kind of really what you want if you're a boxing fan. You want to see the guys mix it up like the old days, and you want to see the best guys fight each other. Well, Floyd has been in retirement for a couple of years, and he took the challenge from. Conor McGregor, who is a MMA fighter, and they're going to meet, but they're going to meet in the boxing ring. And Conor McGregor has never boxed in his entire career. They're going to use 10-ounce gloves, which are big gloves. They usually use 8-ounce gloves, but because they're going to fight at 154, they're using 10-ounce gloves. They're going to fight in Mayweather's hometown. They're going to fight in Mayweather's venue. They're going to fight using Mayweather's referee. Are you foolish enough to think Conor McGregor is going to win this fight? They're trying to suck the fans in on this. Apparently, the uh, on-site sales haven't been very good, and they're hoping that they can get, uh, I think it's 100 bucks for, uh, for the uh, pay-per-view sales. But to me, folks, 
guys, amigos, friends, ladies, this is a sucker bet. Don't waste your money on it. Um, unless you're looking for just kind of a freak show because it might be interesting, but it's not going to be a really good boxing match because you only have one boxer in the ring. So we'll see what happens there. Who knows? You know, when you, you strap them on, anything can happen, but I'm, I, I, I'm not hopeful on this one in terms of having a good scrap. Um, let's take a quick break, very short break. And then we're going to come right back with our special guest, Charles Salzberg. Okay, we're back, and let's talk about Charles Salzberg. Charles is a, he's a, first of all, he's a, the head of the New York Writing Workshop, and I met him when I uh, took a seminar there and got connected to him, and he's, he's a wonderful person, first of all. He gives, and he helps people, and uh, he's, he's a mentor and, and a mensch, and he's an excellent writer, too. What I love about his Swan series of books is that you just pick it up, you dig in, and you start reading. And the words don't get in the way. It just flows, and you go right into the story, and uh, you get into this world that uh, Henry Swan lives in. Charles is a Seamus Award-nominated uh, author, and he's written uh, four Swan books. Swan's Last Song, Swan Dives In, Swan's Lake of Despair, and uh, Swan's Way Out. And I think he's working on a new, new one that'll be out next year. He's also wrote Devil in the Hole, Triple Shot, which I think he wrote with two other authors. And um, his novels have been recognized by Suspense Magazine, the Silver Fashion Falcon Awards, Beverly Hills Book Club Award, and the Indie Excellent Award. He's written 25 nonfiction books, including From Set Shot to Slam Dunk, An Oral History of the NBA, which is fascinating, and my personal favorite, Soupy Says, My Life in Zany Times, uh, with Soupy Sales. He's a visiting professor at the uh, Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse. He has been, and he teaches writing at the Writer's Voice and the New York Writer's Workshops, where he is a founding member, and he really is a wonderful person. So I'm delighted to have him back on the show. He's helped me out. Great advice, and um, uh, he's a friend. So let's uh, welcome Charles Salzberg to Guys Guys Radio. Good evening, Charles. How are you from Central Park? Oh, oh thanks, Robert. I'm, I'm fine. I, you know, I listened to that first um, introduction and I thought, I thought he's supposed to have me on, um, <laughs> but it, it sounded like someone else. Uh, and the game is over. We won. So Fantastic. You know, we don't play till next week. Oh, great. And such a beautiful day in New York. You know, we've had such an up and down crazy kind of weather this summer. You never know what you're going to get. It's going to be hot or cold or windy or rainy. But today was one of those days, right? It was. It really is. It still is. So let's uh, talk a little bit about uh, Swan's Way Out. Uh, it's the fourth book in the series. Um, for the benefit of our audience who may not be familiar with Henry Swan, could you just give a little overview as to who this guy is and what makes him so fascinating to the readers and why he's so connectable, if you will? Well, he, um, he used to, when he, in the first book, he's uh, working out of Spanish Harlem. He's a skip tracer. And for people who don't know what that is, it's, it's kind of the lowest rung of investigator because he's the guy who looks for people who skipped on their bills or run away from their spouse or uh, he repos cars. And um, that's what he started out doing. And he sort of lives on the margin of society. He has an office, a, a, you know, a kind of a dumpy office in Spanish Harlem in New York City and Manhattan. And he's just making it. Uh, and sometimes he doesn't make it. And in the first book, he um, gets hired by a wealthy woman uh, to find her husband. And uh, that sets him off kind of in a, in a new career because... <clears throat> He still is, is the kind of detective who, um, who finds things, uh, finds people or things. And that's what his kind of gimmick is, I guess. Um, and after the second book, he actually gets a partner by the name of Goldblatt, who is a uh, disbarred attorney who's kind of slovenly and eating all the time. And he's kind of the antithesis of, of Swan. <clears throat> And Swan is, uh, has been married. His wife was killed in a freak accident. Um, and he has a son who, when his wife died, when the son was four or five, he realized he couldn't take care of the son. And so what he did was um, he gave the son to his in-laws in the Midwest. 
and he hasn't seen his son for 10, 14 years. And that plays into this last book, which is why I mention it, mention his family. Uh, now, so that's pretty much who he is. He's now moved out of um, the, the, the horrible place in, in Spanish Harlem, and he works out of a, an office that's uh, part of a friend's office. And the friend is uh, named Ross Clavin, and he's a rare book dealer. And he gives um, Swan space in his apartment to, to have a little office. And so he's actually moved downtown uh, now. Now, I, uh, just knowing you from a tonality standpoint, I sense a little bit of Swan and Charles, and I sense that maybe these other two characters, Clavin and Goldblatt, may be loosely based on some people you know. Is that possible? Well, it's very possible. It's actually, I use their names. Um, I've, tried, uh, I've tried to create whole new characters around the names, but... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, some of it probably uh, bleeds through, uh, especially on Clavin. But uh, I'll tell you a funny story about that because I used in the book, I use a lot of names of people I know for characters. Mm-hmm. And um, in Swan Dives In, I use the name of a, um, uh, a college professor that I taught alongside named Richard Dubin. And the book came out and Richard invited me up to Syracuse to Newhouse to speak. So before I'm, I'm sitting there waiting and, um, you know, I've always told the people I've used your, your name, but there's nothing else about you that's really real in the book. So don't take it personally. So and he knew this. So he comes over to me before the, the class starts and he whispers in his ear, you know, I don't have a fat ass. <laughs> because in the book, <laughs> I give I give Dubin a fat ass. So even after all my, you know, uh, arguments that it was not really him. He still had to say to me, I don't have a fat ass, which he doesn't. Oh, that's hilarious. That's great. Now, uh, one of the uh, really cool things about the Swan books is they, they have kind of the uh, multiple plots that are plots rather that are woven together mm-hmm. and they work seamlessly. And um, I was reading about you and you kind of mentioned that you really don't sit down. Uh, you don't map everything out ahead of time. <clears throat> you sit down with some anticipation and, uh, figuring out like, well, what am I going to do now? And then you dive in. Tell us a little bit like Swan, but tell us a little bit about your process, Mm -hmm. because I think a lot of the aspiring writers out there would love to know how you work. And it sounds, you know, fascinating because I think a lot of us out there, you know, we have to like lay it all down and like, what does the main character want and why can't he get it? And what's the inciting incident and the act one, act two, act three, and all this stuff that uh, you know, is, is laid down either on index cards or, you know, a, just a rough outline or whatever. But it's, it's rare to find, uh, you know, writers like yourself who sit down and then go for it. It's like you remind me, you know, Keith Richards. Uh, I was reading this article and in his book also about, you know, the way he writes songs is he goes to the studio and the other Rolling Stones are there and then he waits for something to happen. And now that they're in their 70s, they don't like working that way. So, Mick Jagger brings in like 40, you know, rough tracks and they try to work something out between them on that. And that's why they take so long to make records now. But I'm, I'm wondering uh, about your process. I mean, tell, tell us about that. Well, it's true. I don't outline. Not only do I not know what's going to happen, I, I don't know what's going to happen on the next page or the next paragraph or the next sentence. I sit down and um, uh, I just, pick up from where I left off before. And for me, especially the Swan books, they usually start with a first sentence. So to give you an example of the process, um, in, in Swan's Lake of Despair, I was walking down the street and I got a, a first line popped into my head, which is, um, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that's perfect for Swan. Fantastic. That's something, yeah. you know, and, and what I'm going to do is that's going to play into um, a midlife crisis for him. So I had the first line and I said, okay, where is he when he says that? And who does he say it to? And I thought, well, where's the most inappropriate place to say that? And I thought, well, what if he's at a poker game with four or five other guys? Yep. And in the middle of a hand, he says, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And from there, uh-huh. it was simple because, you know, Robert, if you're in a poker game and someone says that to you, what are you likely to say to them if you're in the middle of the hand? Like, shut up and play, right? 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so right away I have the second line, which is shut up and play the cards, you know, or, or you know, you in or out. So that, that's the way I kind of work is one thing leads to another. And by the end of that chapter, uh, I've introduced all the people who are in the game and I figure, okay, one of them is going to come to him after the game, knowing what he does for a living, that he finds things for people, and he's going to ask him to work for him. He's going to ask him to meet with him the next day. And that's how that first chapter ends. But I had no idea what it was going to be that um, he was going to be hired to do until I put chapter two up and mm-hmm. got him in the office of the guy who asks him for help. Yep, you hit, so put the little twist at the end of chapter one, and that leads you to chapter two, and it's just done in right. such a cool way because you get you write in on the poker game as a reader, and then the guys order pizza, and then there's an aside mm-hmm. to Swan by one of the other characters, and in the next chapter you find out, okay, this is what this is going to be all about. But that's just the beginning because you've got the three plots in uh, Swan's Way Out. You've got this uh, embezzlement issue. Right. By uh, the the missing guy and the Hollywood producer. Right. And then you've got a salesman of some illegal painting that might be illegal. And then you've uh-huh. got the uh, other plot concerning Swan's son. So right. while right. while you, uh, you know, in terms of process, when you did you have all three of those ahead of time or did no. you like one begot the other begot the other or they were totally separate and you figured out, well, how do I weave these together? Because in a crime novel, you can make a crime out of anything, and you can, if you're a good right. weaver, you, you weave, right? Right. Well, first of all, I'm, I'm a little bit unique in that I don't, except for the first book, I don't do murders. I don't, they, they're not murder mysteries. There are mm-hmm. no murders that take place in me. So because, and that's purposeful. I, I figure other people do murder, and they probably do it better yep. than I can. <clears throat> but there are lots of other crimes that all of us can um, identify with, you know, that happen every day. And sometimes they're small crimes. Uh, and sometimes they're, you know, just very personal crimes. And so uh, that's what I try to do is, 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 is a find a crime that, that, that is pro B. I like to have it in a world that I can immerse myself in. So in, in Swan's way out, it's the world, it's the world of Hollywood which I know a little about. And then, you know, I find out more and the world and the art world. And what's, what's kind of interesting for me is I was never going to write a fourth one. I was going to just do three and out. And so for a year I, I worked on another book totally. And then um, I suddenly got an idea for Swan. And the reason I was going to stop at three is I thought I took him as far as he could go. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, um, you know, but I got this idea and part of the idea was, a lot of people, especially women, who read the first couple of books are fascinated by his son and, and his relationship or his non-relationship with his son. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, this is going to be the last one I write, number four, Swan's Way Out. So I'm going to introduce the son, who's now a teenager, and the son is going to have um, run away from his grandparents. And so Swan has to find his own son. And so, um, and, you know, not to give anything away uh, about Mm -hmm. the plots, but uh, that really was going to be the last swan. And then I got an idea for a fifth. Uh, So, uh, and the fifth, which I'm in the midst of writing now, which may be the last one or not, um, has to do with, it's focused more on Goldblatt's life. Because I thought, he's an interesting character, and I haven't really delved into who he is and and, um, what he is. So that's pretty much the, the process is, um, but for, for that one that we're talking about is um, I do one crime and then I think, okay, I need another crime and I have him get involved in a second crime. And the last two books have been three. I don't know if I'll always do three stories at the same time, but I'm kind of, um, it, it also keeps my interest because I can go from back and forth from crime to crime for him. And the other reason I did that is, um, I'm kind of into reality and you know, the truth is I don't think any detective could make a living on just one case. So I thought a lot of the real detectives have two or three cases going at once. So that's what I'm going to do for Swan. So that's how I came to that idea of doing um, more than one case in in a book. Well, let's take it back to the beginning when, you know, you, you've written 25 nonfiction books and it's been kind of, you know, kind of your mainstay. And then later on in life, if you will, fabulous, fictional character 
was that by design or how did you come up with the whole Swan concept and what inspired you to say, I'm going to do a, cr- a crime novel? Uh-huh. Well, that's kind of an interesting story because it actually started about 30 years ago when I was writing very literary novels and I wasn't really selling them. And um, I, was, I had taken a class. I was in a, an MFA program for one week at Columbia. And the, um, the teacher that I had, who was a writer, said to me, don't you know what a story is? You know, you don't write plot. You just write character. And uh, I didn't think that was true, but I took that as a kind of a, um, uh, you know, a dare. And I said, mm-hmm. okay, I'm going to write something that's so plotted that it's going to be all plot. And I realized that the most plotted kinds of novels that you can have are, are crime novels, mysteries, detective stories. <clears throat> they are very plotted. And so I went out and I read about 20 detective novels, mystery novels. Mm-hmm. Not that yep. I had read them before when I was a kid. And I decided to write one novel, one, uh, and I, and one character, and just that was it. It was a one-off. And it was called... Swan's last song, and it was mm-hmm. called that because it was his last song. After the, yep. after the first book ends, he quits the business mm-hmm. because he's so, um, you know, he, he's so disoriented because he has a sense of the world that it's very ordered, and he finds out that it's chaotic. And in the first novel, when I first wrote it, he doesn't solve the crime. Uh, and this is about 25 years ago I finished, and I sent it out to editors and agents and they all said, we love the character, we love the story, but you can't have a novel, uh, a detective novel, where the, the detective doesn't solve the crime. You know, the re- readers won't go for that. So I thought, well, you know, screw them. That's what I want to do. It, you know, a friend of mine called it an existential detective novel. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, so, I, so I put it aside. And then I did all that stuff that you were talking about. I wrote 25 or 20 nonfiction books, um, Swan's last song that I had. And it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't even on a computer. It was uh, a manuscript. And I read it, and I thought, you know, I could, I could probably update this, and maybe publishing has changed since I first submitted it. So I did, and I gave it to an editor I know uh, who worked at a house that I had written uh, a crime, true crime novel, a true crime book for. And he read it, and he said, I love this, but I can't publish it with this ending. So I said, okay, I'll change the ending. So what I learned in 25 years was how to sell out. So <laughs> I, I changed the ending and I thought, well, I'm never going to, you know, do another crime novel. And much to my surprise, it was nominated for a Seamus Award, which I didn't yeah. even know what it was at the time. And um, I lost and I got really pissed off. And I said, I'm going to keep writing these things until I win something. There you go. But, then I, but then I realized, you know, that you can, with a crime novel, you can write about anything. It's not, you know, they can be very literary. And so I deal with, yeah. um, with topics that are not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, involved with crime. So in uh-huh. Swan's Lake of Despair, he's hired by someone, a young guy, who has a girlfriend, and he goes to visit the girlfriend. And not only isn't she in her apartment, but all the furniture is gone. Everything is gone. And he hires Swan to find out what happened to her. And I thought, well, that has to do with having a broken heart. Everyone's had a broken heart, you know, where someone, sure. you know, dumped them. So mm-hmm. I, I realized that I can write about just about anything under the guise of crime because so many crimes occur. So that's pretty yeah. much how that started. No, that's a great story. And it's so true, you know. Uh, and when you talk about uh, plot and uh, characters, um, I've always been a big fan of Lawrence Block, and I've had the opportunity of meeting him on multiple occasions by running because he does power walking and stuff, and I've seen mm-hmm. him down on the uh, west side, and I actually went into the mysterious bookstore one time. I don't know if it's still open. And, uh, it, I is. Said, it is. And I said, does Lawrence Block ever come in here? And the lady yeah. who was working there said, he's right over there. And I no, went up God. to him and started talking to him. I had read almost every book he's ever written, including his book was he on friendly? writing. Was, he was very was he nice. friendly, Robert? Yeah. Oh, yes, he was. Because yes, it's he was. interesting. My connection to him is I was one of the judges for the short story award for the Edgars, and he won it, and I was the presenter of the award. So I met mm-hmm. him for like three minutes when I presented him the award, but I didn't really uh, talk to him. But it's nice to know that he was friendly and, and chatted with you. 
Well, he was nice. I mean, initially he looked at me when, like he was like, are you going to kill me or something? But then he realized <laughs> that I was just somebody who, you know, admired him. And I had some good questions and I had actually uh, um, corresponded with him via email and he was always very kind and he always wrote back to me. So uh, I mentioned that and he kind of put the face to the emails and stuff. And but, you know, the point is his books uh, on Matthew uh, Scudder. Um, you know, they'll get into, uh, you know, he goes to the same diner and here he's eating a cheese sandwich and all this mundane stuff that it has nothing to do with crime, but develops the character and you really get mm-hmm. pulled into this world. And then things happen, as you say, uh, based on life. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's it's so true. So, you know, plot, you know, maybe it's overrated. Uh, Maybe it isn't, but, you know, you've got to have great characters and you've got a, a one of a kind in Swan. So uh, uh, I, I love the fact that you, uh, you know, you put the book aside and you took it out because timing is everything in life. So congratulations. I'm so happy for you. And uh, now you're going to have a fifth Swan book. So it's really yeah. great. It's really fantastic. It's a it's a good story. And I'm sure I've got to think that it's been a little bit of a surprise to you where you've been at it for a long time and you've done a lot. And then all of a sudden. You, you hit the gold, you know, the gold ore. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, about that, I mean, I was shocked the other day when I found that two Swan books, Swan's Way Out and Swan's Lake of Despair, made a list of the all-time best noir books. Uh, wow. You know, uh, I think there were 300 of them. And for me to have two of them, uh, you know, and I'm really kind of a novice at that. I was really knocked out. I don't know who made that list, but I mean, made that list out, but somehow two of my books got on it, um, which thrills me. Let, let me ask you another question, if you don't mind about process, since, you know, I, I'm writing also and, and for our audience, I hope you can bear with us. But, you know, uh, since your, your process is you sit down, and you just go for it. Um, do you find yourself having to uh, kill your kill a lot of darlings, as they say, as Hemingway would say, or do you just kind of manage to keep going and weave everything together? Uh, I would say primarily the latter. Uh, only once have I, uh, and it was in a Swan book, have I gone like five thousand words and realized it wasn't it wasn't working and thrown it away. And it was when I gave him a girlfriend. And it just wasn't, it didn't feel right and it wasn't working. And I'd say that's the only time, and it, which is not to say that I don't write, I, I write through and then I keep going back. So it's not to say that I don't change things as I go back, but I've never had to throw out chunks of anything. Uh, I'll throw out sentences because when I go back, I'll, I'll say, oh, this is overwritten. Uh, I've already said this and I don't need to say it again. But Primarily, uh, n- not big chunks, except that once where I, I threw out about 5,000 words because they just weren't good. They weren't going anyplace. So I'm mm-hmm. not afraid to do it, but um, because there's some kind, of, um, it's got some kind of subconscious editor, I think, that works when you're doing this a long time where you don't – I actually like writing myself into a corner because it makes me uh, think about uh, writing something different, going a different way. So I'm never at a point where I've written myself into a corner that I can't get out of. It becomes kind of a challenge for me to get out of it. I think that's very wise. I really, I really like that because it forces you well, to be able you know, to let, kind of flip the switch me, and be inventive. Yeah, let me give you an example. I've Please. just finished a book that's coming out in March, and it's not a swan book. It's called Second Story Man. And it's, it's, about, it's got three characters, and each of them tells his story in the, in the book. One of them is a master burglar named Francis Hoyt, who's based on a, a real-life bandit called the Dinnertime Bandit, who only hit during dinnertime because he knew the jewelry would be there, the, the valuables, and he knew the most likely the uh, alarm wouldn't be set, on, set, and everyone would be downstairs eating. And mm-hmm. then there was a, uh, um, a burglar named the Silver Thief who only stole high-quality high silver. So, and he's extremely, as Francis Hoyt is, two people are after him, a state investigator uh, who's retired and a Miami, Cuban-American Miami police detective. They team up to bring him in. And he's extremely arrogant. He thinks he's the best ever. And he keeps pushing the envelope. And here's an example of, of somehow mysteriously processed working is toward the end of the book, this guy is so arrogant and so brazen that he knows these two guys are looking for him. So he goes to the home of the investigator, knocks on the door, 
and introduces himself and, and essentially is taunting him. You know, you'll never catch me. You'll never <laughs> find me in the app yeah. doing it. So I'm writing this chapter and I'm getting toward the end of the chapter and I think, wait a minute, this character is so damn arrogant. He's going to steal something from this house right from underneath the, the nose of the investigator and the, the cop who's there too. So I have him steal an ashtray, a silver ashtray. And after he leaves, the two, go- the two cops realize that they've been, you know, that these, the guys robbed him. And I didn't plan that, but I'm not going to say how, but that one little act that was totally unplanned mm-hmm. is what brings him down in the end. That's what gets him caught in the end. But it was not planned at all. I didn't know how I was going to end it. And I just, you know, I just got that idea of through the character that this is what he would do. And that was his downfall because the book to me is really about, and it sort of ties into today. It's about this American obsession with being the best and being winners. You know, Trump is always talking about winners and losers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really dangerous way to, to look at life. And this both in a way, both the, one of the cops and, Certainly the, the burglar, Francis Hoyt, thinks that he's the best ever. And uh, this is, you know, the, the end it. of the book is what I think can happen to, to if, if, you, if you carry through that kind of thinking about winning at any cost. And I guess, uh, you know, when you think of the big picture, winning, uh, it's contextual. It depends on what the context is to define Absolutely. what winning really is. And I think that's where a lot of times in American exceptionalism and with our president and all that, a lot of times we go wrong because we define this is winning, this is losing. And right. it's, it's only the surface level. There's a lot of other levels beneath that. But um, let me ask you a couple of questions about the publishing business, uh, and then I'll let you go because sure. I'm sure you want to celebrate sure. your team. Real quick, uh-huh. um, your perspective on the publishing industry now versus 20 years ago. I can tell you one constant. Ever since I've been dealing with the industry, I'm on my second agent now, and they always say the same thing. The market's getting tougher and tougher. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, I'll tell you a big in- uh, difference, and that is that it's never been worse in terms of getting answers from editors and agents. I'm well published and I've had manuscripts with agents or editors for as long as a year and still haven't heard. Uh, there's a, there's a, a kind of um, wow. rudeness, I think, that is, I hear these stories all the time from my students, so I know it's not just me and from friends. I think that's one difference. The other difference is uh, self-publishing. So there's more stuff out there but there was a tightening of the market in that all the big publishers are looking for bestsellers, which has resulted in, in a way, in a boon for, for writers in that a lot of small publishing companies have started. Like my books mm-hmm. are now published by a company called Down and Out, which I is noticed independent, that, yeah. right, mm-hmm. just do crime, but they're not the only one. And so in a way it, it's helped writers open up the market for them, but not with the big publishers. I mean, they're only interested, you know, my favorite story is a friend of mine who was an agent went to lunch with one of the big, big editors, I think at Simon and Schuster. And she said to him, what kind of books are you looking for? And he said, bestsellers. And she laughed Mm. because no one knows what a bestseller is, Robert, until it becomes a bestseller. So those are the two differences that I notice. Um, so do you think uh, self-publishing is helping or, or, or not helping? It sounds like you think it's helping because it's, uh, it's created some of these small presses now. It's, 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 it's forced some type of movement in the marketplace because everybody well, seems to be not – they don't want to take any chances. Right. Well, what's helped is not, not self-publishing, but it's connected to self-publishing, and that is print-on-demand because mm-hmm. now you can print-on-demand your books – and you don't have to have 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 printed, and they don't sell and they sit in a warehouse. So small publishers wouldn't be able to afford that. First of all, they'd have to pay for um, storage, and they'd have to pay for each copy of the book. So what's made a big difference for them is this um, print-on-demand, because they only print as many books as they think they can sell. That's a big difference. The, as far as self-publishing, I'm not against it, but... If you're going to do it, you better do it well. You know, you better mm-hmm. hire a professional to design it and to edit it and all that. Plus, you've got to have a marketing plan, which is where you come in. I mean, this is where you're a genius because this is your business. And mm-hmm. that is people will 
self-publish, and I'll say to them, okay, you've sold 25 copies to your friends and, and, and family, then what? And they have no idea what to do next. So even hire a professional, like I, I don't know if you would hire yourself out, but you find you have to hire a professional marketer and PR person, and it still will not guarantee that you're going to sell. But right. my advice to people who are going to do it, and I understand why they do it, because they get impatient with the market because of what I was just saying about um, people answering them. But they have to have a plan. It's not enough just to put the book out there and hope somehow someone's going to find it amongst you know, 50,000 other self-published books. So talk a bit, little bit about uh, you know, how important then is platform. Uh, for, for fiction, it's not important at all. For nonfiction, it's essential. You, okay. can, um, you, know, you, can, you can write a novel and you don't need a platform. Uh, I mean, it's nice you know, if you have a bunch of Facebook friends and a bunch of Twitter mm -hmm. people, but it's not as essential. Uh, it certainly will help. But um, nonfiction, you, they, they want you to have that platform. And in case your listeners don't know, it's, it's almost like pre-selling the book. Your platform, yep. for instance, would be this radio show. And yes. if you do talks places or, you know, if you've mm -hmm. done a lot of uh, stuff with uh, churches or synagogues or something like mm -hmm. that, or you teach, that's your platform. Uh, so it's more important with nonfiction than it is with fiction. Okay. Uh, last question before I, uh, you know, we'll get to your social media and all of that stuff. But um, the, the consumer nowadays, uh, the reader, they uh, let's agree if, uh, or disagree. I think they have a short attention span. And when people are on the computer, they're reading. When people are on their phone, they're reading. And so, I mean, personally, I've, I've boiled it down to I do a daily meme because a guy's guy meme because I, I know I just want to get something out there that's a bite-sized piece of candy for them that they like chew on and uh, digest because it, it, that's, that's how people are now. That's the behavior. Mm -hmm. It's like, like right. it or not, this is how people are, uh, you know, consuming. What are your thoughts about, you know, this short attention span and how people consume various types of media, uh, you know, and using their phone and not just a computer, but their phones now. Right. Uh, I think you're right. There is a shorter attention end, but I'm kind of in the minority here. I think there are more readers than ever, but they're just reading different ways. As you yep. point out, the, the things are, are being delivered to them in different ways. So even I, if I'm in the subway and, you know, I've got my phone with me, I'll, I'll read from my Kindle on my phone. And that's what the yep. young people, they read more from their iPads and their phones yep. and their, you know, but they're still reading. And I think in a way they're reading more, um, but they are reading shorter things, which is, you know, which is not so great for, for those of us who write novels, but we have to adapt. And one of the, one of the uh, not, not a trick, but one of the things you can do is um, write shorter chapters. Um, yes. One of the, I heard someone say that yep. one of the reasons great. for James Patterson's incredible success is short chapters. Yep. And a, a, a woman said that to me who was a reader. She said, I love it because I'm busy so I can read a chapter, the three-page chapter, put it down, you know, cook dinner, whatever. So I think there are ways to adapt mm -hmm. to just what you're saying about the short attention span. Got it. Oh, fantastic. Listen, Charles, let me let you get back to your uh, peeps there in the park. Um, mm -hmm. Tell everybody where they can find more about you, about Swan, where they can find your books, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. Well, um, my website is charlesalsberg.com, one word. It also, I have a great site called henryswan.com, which has videos on it, and it's sort of an interactive site. So that's henryswan with two ends.com. And um, I'm on Facebook. I have a, an author page, Charles Salzburg author, but I also have a regular page, Charles Salzburg. So anyone can friend me that they you know want, unless you're like a, a hooker from... Uh, from Russia or, um, you know, a, or, or from Ghana trying to, you know, get me to take all your money. Exactly. So I, I usually uh, will accept friendship. And uh, Twitter is just Charles Salisbury. So that's pretty much the, uh, where people can find me. And they can, you can order the books in bookstores, um, the, or you can just get it online, either at Amazon or, or Barnes & Noble. Fantastic. Well, listen, Charles, uh, Thank you so much uh, for being on Thank the show, you, number one. Thank you for uh, all that you do for other writers. I think part of the key to your success, whether you know it or not, is you've helped make other people successful. And that's it's a really good pleasure. thing. 
And, uh, and thank you so uh, much I'm, for I'm having proud me. To be a friend. Be well, and I'll hit you up soon. Okay. okay? All right. Take, Take care, care, Charles. Thank you, Robert. Good night. Okay. All right. That's Charles Salzberg. The book is Swan's Way Out, his new one. So check it out. And uh, let's take a quick break, and then I'll do the second part of the Guys, Guys Guide, and, uh, and that'll be the show for tonight. So um, we're going to take a break right now. Okay, we're back, and uh, let's quickly do the Guys, Guys Guide. As I mentioned, as I mentioned to everybody, um, as I mentioned to everybody, that the Guys, Guys Guide uh, this evening is about um, New York City. Uh, should I stay or should I go? I wrote a blog on this a couple of weeks ago and I've got some good feedback. Every time I write about New York, people resonate with it. Obviously there's a lot of people here and a lot of people from here have gone to other places. And it's always that back and forth. It's the greatest city in the world. Or like, I can't believe I live here. Uh, most, most of my experience in New York has been, I love it here. It is so stimulating. There's so many great things. I talked about the food, the drink, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. It's always changing. Uh, and there's so much opportunities, but let's get into reasons to consider leaving New York. Number one, the rent and everything else is, as they say, too damn high. New York City, uh, I don't care where you live in New York City. It's expensive all around. Manhattan in particular, um, but New York's very expensive and housing is ridiculously expensive here. So unless you kind of get ahead of the trend and you move into a neighborhood before it becomes up and coming, you're going to pay through the nose. When I got out of college, um, uh, you could afford to come into the city and, uh, you know, two people could get a one bedroom or a two bedroom place and it was affordable. You could start your career out entry level job and get a place in the city. Uh, you might have to have three guys in an apartment or something like that, but you could do it. Nowadays, it's really tough because you go out. I was reading an article about a new restaurant the other day and said, yeah, mixology bar and all this and come in and drinks are between 17 and $23. Okay, you meet somebody, let's say you do a uh, Tinder date or match.com date or whatever. One drink, two, $23 times two, $46. Tax, tip, you have another drink. You're over 100 bucks. somebody you don't even know. It's expensive to live here. You go to lunch, you go to one of these salad places, you know, with all these chopped and all these other places. And, you know, you can drop 10 bucks on lettuce uh, for lunch. It's expensive here. It's expensive. So if you can get ahead of the game and you can buy and you get into a neighborhood that's a development zone, you can get a 421A, which is a 25-year tax abatement. And you buy and you stay for five years or so. You're going to make some money. Otherwise, it's tough. Uh, if you can buy, you can make money. If you're renting, it's really expensive. Um, so I don't know if I want to do that forever. I've done okay because I've been ahead of the game and I've been here a long time. So I know where to look and where to go. But for a lot of people, it's tough. So that's one reason to consider leaving. Mass transit is worse than purgatory nowadays. It's just horrible here. Um, you know, the subway system, everybody uses it. You can get on the subway every hour of the day or night and it's going to be crowded that's a good thing but the service is so uh spotty and on weekends uh when there's bad weather or something it's horrible you can wait and wait and wait and it just kills your day and it makes you like not want to leave your 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 neighborhood it's like i know friends they live in la you know if you're living around santa monica you don't go up to burbank you don't go up to malibu only on rare occasions, you work, you come back to Santa Monica, you stay there. Not that Santa Monica is not a bad place to be, but people don't want to get in the car and sit in traffic. Here it's getting like, I don't want to get on the subway. Uh, so that's tough. Also, it, it's incredibly noisy in this town. I don't care where you live. There are jackhammers and bright lights 24-7. I live near, uh, near 116th Street on the west side. And... For seven years, they have been digging up the same intersection. I don't know what they're doing, but they keep digging it up and covering up. And then two months later, they come back and they do it at all hours, the day and night. I don't know what is the problem, but that's symptomatic of living in New York. You get a lot of noise and there's people milling out on the streets and spilling out of bars at all hours. And now some of the places are open at like four in the morning and you have people, they just stand around outside talking. Then somebody decides to pull out a trombone and start playing or people start yelling. And it's just, it's a noisy, loud, 
bright light town. Uh, so you have to you have to be willing to deal with that. Um, City life also, from a humanistic standpoint, can be very toxic on your body. We pick up all the Wi-Fi. There's so much radioactivity in the air with the telephones, all the buildings, all the connectivity. It's, it's not that healthy. I've, I've done some work with Ayurvedic medicine and living in a city like this. There's a lot of stuff going around in the air that uh, is uh, not all that healthy. Uh, so I make it my business. I get into Central Park or any park in New York or over to the west side along the water whenever I can, because I just want to stay away from some of the, uh, some of that pollution, if you will. And the last thing, at least for me is, uh, I've been here so long. It's kind of been there, done that. There's not that much left for me to do here that I haven't done. I'm stimulated. I like the people. I like the energy. New York's always changing. It's fascinating. And it is kind of the, you know, the center of the, center of our civilization for better or for worse. But at a certain point, you got to say, okay, what else is out there? And do I want to raise a kid right up through, you know, the, the lifetime in, in Manhattan of all places? I don't know. I don't know if that's for me and it's, if it's for my son. So I'm going to be making a decision on that in the next couple of years. And that's what drove me to write this blog post. As you can find on my website, robertmanny.com. Okay, that's our show for this evening. We're going to be back next week at 7 p.m. Uh, next Wednesday. And we have a, uh, let's see, we have an author coming on. She is a metaphysical author by the name of Kate O'Donnell, O'Connell. And uh, she's got a new book out. And we're going to be talking to her. But until then, have yourself a great week. Enjoy the summer. Get out there. Have fun. Don't stay inside. Uh, enjoy it while it's here because before you know it, there's going to be that cool breeze in the air. So like I always say at the end of the show, remember that guys, guys, finish first.